All right, welcome everyone to the Yogic Studies Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Powell, and this is episode 26. Today, we are joined by Dr. Adrian Munoz, who is Associate Professor at the Center for Asian and African Studies at El Colegio de Mexico. Adrian, welcome to the Yogic Studies Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Uh, it's a nice um, midday here in Mexico City. Um, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy and excited uh, about this whole experience. <laughs> yes, it's been a long time coming. I think we've been talking about this, I feel like, for a long time. And yeah, uh, yeah it's it's really a joy to work with you. Um, to have you on for the podcast here today, but of course to have you at Yogic Studies teaching this online course, uh, Latin uh, or Yoga in Latin America, YS118, which of course we will have plenty of time to get to. Uh, as, as we were prepping for today's course, um, as we were prepping for today's podcast, uh, I was thinking back to uh, when we first met and I was trying to remember it, you know, I had been familiar with your work for quite a while as a grad student, um, looking at the history of Hatha yoga. And, uh, I knew of your work on the not yogis. Uh, and I think at one point maybe we were like giving feedback on a paper on academia.edu. Oh yeah, that's right. I think maybe our, our friend, colleague Keith Cantu had put up a paper asking for feedback and we were both giving like live comments on it. And I don't know. Yeah, sure. was, That's right. We were yeah. really thinking along the same lines about some of the comments. And uh, it was to me, it was reaffirming. I was like, oh, OK, if Adrian thinks this is right, then I must be on the right track. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I had I had forgotten about that. Yes. Didn't it have to do something with serpents? That text by, by Keith, I, I forgot. Yeah, was it, it was a long a, time ago? It might have been a Bengali bowel text yeah. on yoga yeah. that was yeah, sure. incorporating not and hatha yoga elements. Um, and uh, so I think there was something about serpents and chakras and, you know, a unique yeah, shadow sure. body sure. system there. Uh, but that was, you know, one early encounter. But then I think we met uh, in person. I can't remember which conference or workshop was the first one, but we've we've had the opportunity to spend some time together uh, at these workshops. I think that the first one was at the South Asia conference in Madison, but I don't remember whether it, this was in 2015 or 2018. Okay. Uh, I have only been twice to this conference. So it was in one of them, and uh, it was probably a... a, a friend of ours, a friend that we have in common, and a former classmate of mine in Mexico, Genoveva Castro, who probably introduced us, but I don't remember if she did it like in person or through an email. Oh, yes, yes. No, I remember that meeting now. And yes, Genoveva and I, we crossed paths at the University of Washington in Seattle. Yeah. I was doing my MA. And uh, yes, she she also went to... um, to the same university, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Did she study with you there, or were you? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we were classmates for uh, during the master's degree, so we shared joys and griefs. <laughs> yes. It was a tough period of time, but uh, but enjoyable as well. Yeah. And she's a very dear friend. 
Mm, good. Yeah, and then we spent uh, a good amount of time together at that um, Sanskrit yoga text reading workshop in Portland, Oregon, which was sponsored by the Hatha Yoga Project, um, which feels like a lifetime ago now, pre-COVID. Incredible, yes. But uh, what an amazing experience that was, just getting to take a week of retreat at the uh, ashram center in in Oregon and um, just getting to read with some of the some of the world's best right it was a, a an incredible experience yes uh, I'm I'm very I feel very honored to have been invited to, uh, so I'm very thankful to James Mallinson and Jason Birch who invited me over and uh, I've met them before uh, a couple of times in London but I've never met Alex C. Sanderson before. It was my very first time, and it was such a treat. He's an amazing guy. He's yeah, it's a rare treat to to be able to read Sanskrit texts with him, sitting around a table like that, to have that kind of time and spaciousness, and to just kind of have an intellectual feast like that, and to just get to sort of receive that download and transmission it's out, out of this world. He's, he's not only a very knowledgeable man uh, in Sanskrit and Tantric traditions, but he's also got a very fine sense of humor. He's Absolutely. very amusing. Underrated, very underrated sense of humor. Completely, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the great academics do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're probably right, yeah. Wow. Uh, and I, I think we also met... One year before in London, is that possible? Did you come to the, yeah. what was it called? It was another workshop. It was hosted in both SOAS and Open University. Uh, oh, no, I didn't go to that one. Uh, maybe that right. was a celebration of one of the, the book projects that you guys did. It was a preparation for it, yes. Oh, I see, yeah. No, no, I didn't. I didn't participate in, in that particular one uh, but i know okay. i know what you're referring to yeah but uh yeah a lot of different crossing of paths i mean we've been in touch you know over the years as well uh our shared mutual interests and passion for you know for the history of yoga but the knots and and hatha yoga in particular so so how did you get into all of this, Adrian? Uh, Whoa. I mean, tell me, tell me a little bit about your story, your background. Um, I believe growing up in Mexico and you know discovering the study of India and yoga. Um, but then tell us, you know, how did that lead into yoga in particular and your work on the Nath yogis? It sounds like commonplace, but it is a long story. <laughs> And many things have happened. Uh, well, one of the things that we probably have to take into account is that in most of the countries of Latin America, we don't have like, academic degrees in South Asian studies or Asian studies in general. You have like very few selected places or courses, but it's not like general or spread. Uh, so if you're in Mexico and you want to do some undergraduate studies in some uh, Asian culture, you would not find it. And that, that is true for other countries in Latin America. Most of them, with an exception in Buenos Aires, 
but um, you don't have this. And that means that it's usually not a, a decision or a, a natural decision to study India or Japan or whatever. So you usually choose like more standard topics, so to speak. And in my case, I went for literature, English literature in particular, and that was already weird in Mexico. It wasn't common, no? Uh, and I went to the National Autonomous University of Mexico, which is the largest one in Latin America, a very important one. Um, and I actually was interested in poetry mainly. Well, still am. Uh, although my first approaches to literature were through fiction, short stories and a couple of novels. But once I was studying at the university, I was enthralled by poetry. And, and you, you've recently published the work, works of poetry, right? That's right. Yeah, I, I published uh, my second volume of poetry uh, this year. And uh, well, yeah, <laughs> that's another story. And Lovely. there are many things to it. But yes, I'm quite happy about it. Uh, there's a lot of, it, it's got to do with who I am, as a matter of fact. And, and I had neglected that part for many years for scholars, uh, scholar reasons, basically. Not only, but predominantly. Um, now, if you're studying English literature, I mean, the most natural choice if you eventually go to South Asian studies would be post-colonial literature. Uh, it happens quite often, but that's, that wasn't my case. Uh, I don't know if it had to do with the fact that I was more interested in poetry and most of the people doing post-colonial literature are working basically on prose and fiction, not poetry, but not that much at least. But why South Asia? What what pulled you yeah, to, it's, to India? Well, at some point during my BA, I started reading things on both Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta. Of course, no scholarly things on, on the topics, like very general things for a general audience. Uh, but both appealed to me quite a lot. And, and eventually, when I had to write my BA dissertation, I chose uh, to write on William Blake, which is still one of my favorite authors. And I tried to do this very crazy thing of uh, sort of comparative reading, trying to understand William Blake's poetics through the eyes of Advaita Vedanta and Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy. It's a completely <laughs> crazy thing. Uh, but that's probably how I got into it. Uh, I think that it, it was my first immersion into Indian philosophy and partially Indian religions. But by that time, I still wanted to do a career in English literature. And basically, I wanted to become a literary translator. And then I took this training course. It was a two-year training course in El Colegio de Mexico to 
become a, a like a more professional translator of English to Spanish. The thing is that we had like different courses, obviously linguistics and language and so forth and trans, translation workshops. But then we have also one course per semester devoted to Asian traditions, rather Asian cultures. And we had a semester for the Arab world, another one for China, another one for Japan, and another one for India. And I was just in love completely. Mm. And then I learned about the Center for Asian and African Studies and the fact that I would be expected to learn an Indian language. So I was doubly interested and I completely changed then my, um, my orientation. Mm -hmm. I decided to go for the master's degree in El Colegio de Mexico, not anymore pursuing a career in English literature. Um, but in a sense, I guess my translation motifs are still there to some degree. No. Mm -hmm. So you had you had aspirations to go on to grad school to become an academic already when you were doing your undergraduate work. I don't know if that was if that was that clear. What I had very clear in my mind is that I wanted to work with text, and preferably by doing some translations. I wasn't that sure that I would become a scholar, not as an undergrad, uh, probably not even as a master degree student. Uh, it, I mean, if I eventually had any notion of this, it would be like very far-fetched, like something that would never happen to me, completely unachievable. That was for other people, geniuses, or I don't know what. Hmm. Uh, but what evidently life changed. And so you ended up doing your MA um, in Mexico City. And who who... Who was running that program? Who were you studying with at that time? And how did how did your MA experience lay the foundation then for for something life changing that then you know really did shape uh, a career for you? Uh, well, of course, this was completely uh, eye opening because I had no previous experience uh, of studying or properly studying. Um, in-depth things that were related to Indian history and culture and languages. Uh, I knew that there were one or two classes in, in my former university, UNAM, but they were like uh, not um, mandatory courses in any department. They were just optional, especially in the philosophy department. But I didn't uh, take that course anyway, so I had no previous experience except for my informal readings of Advaita Vedanta. And uh, then El Colegio de Mexico is a, in size; it is a small institution. It has a very high reputation, but we are a small institution, so uh, we have a very small number of both staff and students. And El Colegio de Mexico is itself divided in different departments or centers. So in my center, we are probably 
25 instructors. It's not that much if you take into account that we are dividing into six areas of specialization. <laughs> so it's even a smaller number, the staff for South Asian studies. And um, there was David Lawrenson, of course, who eventually became my mentor. Uh, Benjamin Preciado, a Mexican scholar, recently retired. He was my uh, advisor uh, during my master's degree. Uh, then I had Professor uh, Rasik Vihari Joshi, uh, Vaishnava Pandit from Maharashtra. He mm -hmm. was my Sanskrit teacher, uh, the two years and an extra year in my PhD. Um, Uma Tukral, who was a Hindi teacher. Well, she's still the Hindi teacher, but I didn't take Hindi in, in my master's degree. And uh, then these other two Indian colleagues, uh, Saurabh Abdubi and Nishita Banerjee, who basically do subaltern studies and modern history. Uh, I had courses with most of them, except for Uma, because I wasn't studying Hindi. And the, the structure of this degree is extremely formative because of the lack of a previous degree. So the intention of the master's degree program here in, in Colegio de Mexico is meant to provide whatever we were lacking. So every single aspect of history from the Indus Valley civilization up to contemporary India and how, a whole range of different courses on society, culture, religions, and so forth and so forth. And then of course, each semester we had to take courses on language, in my case, uh, Sanskrit, apart from the uh, mandatory courses on history. Um, and then eventually for my thesis, I wrote on Sarasvati. So I didn't write on poetry mm. or Sanskrit poetry at all. Uh, I rather chose, I say, a mythological topic. Uh, but well, I guess in a sense, there was still some uh, attachment to poetry because she is the goddess of learning and poetry and wisdom. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's it was still there. Um, and what I did was a humble monograph on how the figure of Sarasvati stayed and were, was consolidated from the Vedic period onto the Puranic one, and then a couple of reflections on some of the manifestations that she has in tantric traditions. I've forgotten many of the things, of course, because I wrote this a long time ago. Mm. Uh, it was an interesting topic. I'd like to get back to it, as mm. a matter of fact. Yeah, sounds like it. So you're, you're doing your grad training, you're, you're studying uh, Hindu mythology, Saraswati, vast history, method and theory, you're getting your Sanskrit language training. Eventually, I think in the PhD, you start learning Hindi as well. Is that right? Uh, where does yoga come in for you? It wasn't obvious, actually. Uh, and this is, uh, I don't know, funny, but uh, I mean, it's worth mentioning. Most of the scholars right now working on yoga have a 
a direct experience uh, practicing yoga or some form of yoga, and that was not my case. Uh, whenever I happened to eventually practice some form of yoga, was much later, and I had already begun studying South Asian history and Sanskrit, so it, it was the other way around. It was in yoga that took me to South Asian studies. It was South Asian studies that eventually led me to yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that sometimes makes me feel uh, a bit funny when I'm with my colleagues who I know are much more like immersed in, in yoga practice. No, it's, well, I mean, it's just odd, no? Uh, I think, well, I know what you're saying, but I think these days there's quite a range of backgrounds of people coming to yoga studies. I feel like in some ways yoga is like a up and coming, it's a hot topic or subject within the broader South Asian studies. So people, uh, you know, sometimes want to want to jump on or are interested in exploring that, but have different different training, different different backgrounds. Uh, so I know what you mean, but uh, but there's a diversity, right, among yoga scholars. But I, but I like the way you're you're saying that. It is true. I mean, for me, you know, I think as you know, it was yoga that led me to India and South Asia, and South Asian studies. Whereas for you, it's the it's the reverse. South Asian studies that leads you to yoga. I imagine, you know, studying with David Lorenzen, you know, you were getting exposed to Shaivism and Tantra, and perhaps is that where maybe the Nath Yogis kind of came onto your radar is maybe through some of those courses and conversations or yeah how, how did the not yogis kind of become a central focus of your research when uh, of course after my ma the natural choice was to pursue a phd and originally i had thought of probably looking for some institution in the uk so us or other place i wasn't completely sure uh but there was this difficult situation back home my father was in a uh, very terrible medical condition because of a an arrest a terrible arrest that completely destroyed his his brain and i decided to stay in mexico so to share the burden with my brother and my mother. He had to take care of my my dad. Uh, He was almost four years in a semi-vegetative state. It was a horrible uh, thing, Mm. a a complete nightmare. But then I decided to stay in Mexico. Uh, El Colegio de Mexico had a PhD program. We do not right now because of different reasons. Uh, We are trying to redesign the the program but right now we don't have it there was and of course i already knew david lorenzen so because of my work on sarasvati i became interested in 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 the tantric culture i was like very much drawn to it so originally i had envisioned a a work on tantric imagery it was very very vague tantric imagery specifically in kola uh, literature and so that's what i proposed and of course because david lawrence and have already done work on on shaivism and early tantric uh, forms of 
religion, he was chosen as my advisor. And uh, I continued with Sanskrit. Uh, at the time, if you were at the PhD program at the Colegio de Mexico, well, at the Center for Asian and African Studies, you had to choose a second language. And that's why I chose Hindi, which was fortunate because I didn't know <laughs> that I would, it would eventually be quite beneficial for me. That's often how it goes, right? You have to choose exactly. language. And at the time, you don't really know what you want to do. Yeah. And if you're lucky, it'll be the right one. And <laughs> that's the material and, and literature and traditions you want to work on. But it's oftentimes only at late, later stages of your dissertation research when you say, oh, I should have learned Kannada or Telugu. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. Exactly. So good. Okay. Fortuitous. Well, then, the thing is that because I became interested in, in tantric literature, elk, Kaula literature in particular, somehow I came across Matindranath. And because of Matindranath, which is a major figure in some Kaula traditions, I uh, came to know this order of yogis whom I, I knew nothing about before the Nat yogis. And I, I was like completely. Oh no, it, it was. Very, very interesting uh, because of a whole range of different reasons. So on the Matyendra, one hand, Matyendra led you to the knots. Matyendra led me to the nuts, and that's a. <laughs> there is another Matyendra not like to run in my life, actually, but <laughs> I'll come to it if I don't forget. Uh, well, not directly in my life, but somehow. Um, I began reading on the nets, and of course, the Nats were around by the time of Kabir, and David Lawrenson was also a very important scholar on, on Kabir. So he was doubly interested in advising me. It was like mutual, I guess. And uh, it was very fortunate for me to have uh, David Lawrenson as my advisor because he had like this background in, in tantric uh, studies, but also in um, Bhakti literature, it was great. No, I didn't, I had no idea. I was coming uh, across this huge universe of the Nets. So, I, well, I began reading on them and they were not quite tantric, but there was a lot of tantric ideas and notions in, in their texts. Uh, they had a lot to do with yoga. For our listeners, give us a you know a word or two or sentence or two. Who, who are the knots that we're talking about? Well, to put it simply, we we, we can explain that nat yogis is a, a a group, a religious group or order of uh, well, basically renouncers. Although there are a couple of exceptions, a group of renouncers who have been uh, traditionally linked to the practice of hatha yoga. And we, we aren't sure, but they have probably been in existence since the 13th or 14th, 14th century. There are a lot of controversies around, of course. And I mean, the recent scholarship has been pushing the dates constantly back and forth, uh, especially because we aren't sure whether the, the actual name not Pant or not Sampradaya was used 
in former times or whether this is a modern um, usage. But despite that, even if they didn't use the name, a, a grouping of wandering ascetics which were linked to this particular uh, form of yoga, Hatha yoga, were probably very likely um, present very strongly in North India, especially in North India since the 13th or 14th century. We know this because there are a lot of uh, allusions to them in the poetry by Kabir and, uh, and Guru Nanak. There is a, a constant competence with them. And that means that these yogis were extremely influential and important at the time. And South they, India. Beg, I beg your pardon. Uh, and South India, we now we now know. Yes, that's right. That's right. That yeah, that's right. Uh, I knew you were coming. Yes, of I course. Have, you're I right. You're to, right. I you're right. Uh, yes, of course. But but yes, go on, go on. Yeah, because these writings of these bhaktas are there's this exactly. so language. And, and the other thing that was quite interesting for me is that unlike other groups, religious groups, they had literature in Sanskrit and in the vernaculars, which is not common. Usually you have either in Sanskrit or in some form of vernaculars, especially if they're Bhaktas and people like Kabir or Surdas, they would strictly use vernaculars because this is a political stance or social, sociopolitical stance. And on the other hand, usually you would find uh, completely Sanskritic forms. There are different reasons, but this is usually how it goes. And this was not the case. And I find this fascinating. And then, of course, eventually I get to know about this collection of mystical poetry, very much like the Bacta Sand poetry. Uh, related to the Nats. And there is this famous collection known as the Garakbani. I haven't done a lot of work on it. It's a very difficult corpus. Other people have, but not much, actually. There are like two or three people. Mm -hmm. um, and, well, currently, at least, um, Gordon Durjevic and uh, Christine Marewakarovsky, both of them are working on this material. They're probably very competent on it. But before them, I think there was just one Indian scholar, um, Bartval, and that's it. Mm. Uh, and then, okay, if I was first interested in tantric imagery. Then I got into Kaula, and then Matsyendranath, and then the Nat Yogis. Oh, there is a, a complete fascinating history of, of Hatha Yoga. And then on reading the texts of Hatha Yoga, which were ascribed to the Nat Yogis, of course, we aren't sure if they were really Nat documents, but at least traditional says so, or had been saying so. You read the text and then you try to remember what sort of common images you can evoke about the contemporary practices of Hatha Yoga. And it's like, there is not much in common or, or yes, there is something in common, but it, there, there are probably more differences uh, than similarities between the text in Sanskrit and what it's actually happening in the studios. <laughs> What's happening here? No, 
so I guess this is one of the first um, motivations for me to begin studying um, history and literature of yoga. We first had a yoga, but then now it's much more broader. Now for the PhD, I had to to spend one year in in India, mm-hmm. and this is a completely uh, crazy story because even if though I had to go to India formally, there were no formal funds for this, so I had to make do with whatever I had. No, mm. and uh, well, eventually, what I did was just paid for a one way ticket. I I couldn't afford the round trip because I was traveling with my my former wife. Uh, so we could only afford one round ticket, hers, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> That's a crazy thing. And I applied for a scholarship uh, to the Indian Council for Cultural Relations. And what I presented was a monograph on tantric imagery in Kaula literature. And I kept waiting for the answer. One, two, three, four, five, six months, nothing at all. Mm-hmm. I just went with what I had. Of course, I, I uh, sold my car and I don't know what else. So we went and we spent about a year mm-hmm. uh, everywhere. Uh, well, ba- basically in North India. Farthest point inside that we went to, which is basically in central India, is um, Mumbai, and that's it. We we didn't have the chance. Of course, India is so large that you cannot do it. I mean, even in a year, it's just not possible. No, and we spent a lot of months both in Delhi and in Varanasi, uh, plus one month in in Kathmandu. In, in Nepal. Um, I basically devoted time to look and find whatever books I could and pamphlets and popular books on the nets and, of course, on, on Kaula literature. Uh, this strengthened my relationship to, to the Nat Sampradai. Of course, I also went to Gorakhpur. Mm-hmm. And got a lot of uh, books from their uh, bookstore, not only theirs, but outside as well, and in different pilgrimage pilgrimage sites. And I know most of the work that you do is textual, but in in your time in India and in interacting with those field sites, temple sites like Gorakhpur, did you have an opportunity to interact with the living not yogis sampradaya and did that impact your your work or your understanding yes as a matter of fact yes uh, when i was there and reading through the scholarly literature well the assumption was that the even the inventors of hatha yoga were the not yogis so, of course, when I went to Gorakhpur, I stayed there probably three nights in the temple. I got an interview and, and, and they allowed me to stay with, uh, well, with the Satus. And, well, I'm a Gorakhpur of the Nat Yogi's main uh, mandir. So why not do yoga? No, they have a yoga stala, for, of, of course. So... Um, 
I went to, I mean, I got early at 5 a.m. in the morning and, and then went to this yoga stala and there was no yogi or no sadhu there, mm-hmm. just people from, from town. And even the instructor was somebody from town. He was not um, initiated. He was no yogi or sadhu or whatever. So it's like, whoa. What? No, I, I didn't expect this. And then, of course, I tried to look more carefully and even ask a couple of questions to some of the um, sadhus there. And I never saw anybody practicing like physical yoga or like in meditation. No? That does not mean that there are no nat yogis doing that, yeah. but not in Gorakhpur, at least. And not publicly. Probably not publicly, but. I, um, even though I had a very poor Hindi, I managed to to have this interview with uh, Mahant, with Abedianat. He was very, very old, of course, and he couldn't stay for a long time. It was uh, a brief interview. And I had the assistance of another sadhu staying there, a Hare Krishna, as it turns out, mm-hmm. who was in the, in the process of becoming an Adyogi. He was waiting for his first step of the initiation uh, rituals. He had no earlobe uh, perforated yet. Uh, and I asked him about a couple of practices that were in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, a couple of things concerning the Kaula Nyaya uh, Nirnaya, which is a, a tantric text attributed to Matsyendranath. And it was very striking. He was very, very clear. We are no Vamacharins, we are Dakshinacharins. So it was a clear rejection of any possible tantric associations. They they wanted nothing, nothing to do with Tantra. And of course, Gorakhpur is now uh, much more close to, uh, say, orthodoxy, Hindu orthodoxy and on the Hindu right. And of course, Tantra is far from acceptable. You know, uh, this is something that usually outside of India we are not aware of. You know? mm-hmm. We tend to romanticize Tantra, but uh, as a matter of fact, in, in India, usually Tantra means black magic, superstition, and it's cheap and it's bad. You know? <laughs> it's not respectable uh, unless you're a scholar. But Yantra, otherwise, Yantra. Well, Exactly. Uh, and I've heard this more than once, not just from Abedianath, from other yogis as well. Uh, not yogis, I mean. Um, I also remember that when walking in, in, in the Gorakhpur Mandiri, this is a huge place, of course. It's not just a temple. It's a, it's a complex, a huge complex with Jarts and, and the library and the halls and different sorts of offices. And in one of them, I could see a, a young, recently initiated Nat Yogi who was being prepared uh, to, you know, manage different administrative um, activities, not just of the temple internally, but in Gorakhpur. Politically, mm-hmm. well, he, he was Adityanath. 
so oh, it was wow. striking. Yeah, no, no, it was. I didn't speak to him, but uh, had I known, <laughs> I probably would have managed some sort of interview. So around what year would this have been? That was 2004 or 2005. Okay. And for listeners who might not know, who, who is Yogi Adityanath? Uh, who, who is he today in India? He is a political figure. He is the head, the Mahant of Gorakhpur Mandir. So officially, he's the head of Natsampradaya, of course. That can be a little bit problematic, but at least... Officially. Officially. But he's also a politician. And this is also very interesting and something that we take for granted. Uh, in, in other parts of the world, usually you, you see with suspicion and, and you usually don't accept that religious figures take part in political matters. We don't like this. We usually try to separate. You know? uh, in, in the Mexican constitution, this is very clear. There is a clear distinction and separation. You don't want one meddling in the other. Of course, it happens all the time, yeah. but officially it doesn't. And in India, it's not like this. Religious figures can be politicians, formal politicians. And he's a, um, a member of the parliament and he's part of the uh, BJP, uh, the Pariyata Janata Party, which is a uh, right-wing party. Uh, usually in opposition to the Congress party. And he belongs into a lineage of Mahans of Gorakhpur who have been MPs themselves. Now, Aditya Nath is also the, what's the, the official name of this? The chief, um, oh God, I forgot the official name for it. For it. Chief minister or something? The chief minister of Uttar Pradesh. Uttar Pradesh yeah. A huge state. Yeah. So he's very powerful, but he's also so pretty. To clarify, he's a yogi initiated into right. this this medieval lineage of the Nath yogis, closely associated with the development of Hatha Yoga. Uh, he's the Mahant today of right of the Gorakhpur uh, temple, uh, and he is this chief minister, this very powerful politician of the northern state of Uttar Pradesh. So this very powerful commingling of yoga, religion, and politics, and a particular brand of politics. Absolutely. And he's a close ally to Narendra Modi, India's prime minister. Yeah. Um, yeah, we could, we, could, we could continue. I mean, we could have a whole talk about yoga and politics and the, the role that, that he and the not yogis then play, I mean, it's, it's, it's really important. And uh, I think, uh, I know you're actually, you're working on a book project, right? On this subject, or you're, you're involved in an edited volume? Oh, oh yes. But, uh, well, uh, I have like two things coming. Okay. Uh, one is on the not yogis and power in politics. That's mm -hmm. uh, an edited volume by... Uh, Daniela Bevilacqua and uh, Eloisa Stuparic. I uh, hope it's bound to be published soon. Okay. <laughs> ask. Uh, so if she gets to listen to this podcast. Daniela, <laughs> where's the book at? No, where's the book? <laughs> and uh, I know she's got a lot of books she's working on right now. So yeah, no pressure, no pressure, Daniela G. Well, that's part of, uh, well, being 
part of the Hatha Yoga project, I guess. No. Uh, well, but never mind. I'm, I'm going to skip yeah. a little. Yeah, uh, yeah. To get back to one uh, interesting thing that had to do with this rejection of tantra, the thing is that when I receive an, an, a response from the ICCR, that okay, we are going to give you a scholarship, was like four days before I was coming back to Mexico. So almost a year uh, later. Almost a year later, and of course I didn't use it. There was no. Wow. I mean, it was just senseless. Wow. But the interesting thing is that I got to, I somehow learned eventually that the reason that they did not grant me the scholarship was because of the topic. I was I, wondering. That's why tantrism is, you know. Yeah, that's why. And so, you, had you done something on just more, you know, modern postural yoga or Patanjali or, or Vedanta yeah, sure. or, yeah, or sure. something that you know, is a little bit more orthodox, frankly. Yeah. Well, and, and probably because I'm now doing like work on more recent forms of yoga and like nothing, at least not directly related to Tantra. I have been invited by the ICCR now, but through the Indian embassy in Mexico to different events uh a couple yeah. of them in mexico was, was, was there, there was a was it an international day of yoga celebration or something like that in india i remember seeing uh on social media there was some event you were invited as like a delegate of mexico to come to that india one, for something that one was for the kumbh mela in 2019 oh, okay uh what it was an invitation from the part of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the ICCR. <laughs> and they had like this campaign. Uh, the idea was to invite uh, delegates or ambassadors, as they call it, or call them, from about 200 countries to attend the Kumbh Mela. Uh, wow. And of course, when they invited me, and I mean, they would pay for... for um, the airplane ticket and accommodation. I mean, of course, I want to go. <laughs> it's not like I can do this every year. That sounds like a big group. It was a huge group. Of course, I didn't get to speak to everybody. It was just impossible. But also because of the schedule, when I received the schedule by email, the, the idea was something like this. I would fly on February the 21st and then back to Mexico on the 24th. That is spending just two days in India because flying from Mexico to India, I mean, it takes almost a day. It's yeah. about 24 hours. And what with the stopovers and the jet lag, I mean, two days is just crazy. Absolutely crazy. Especially to go to an event like the Kumbh Mela, just the largest gathering of human beings on the planet. But then, of course, when we were there, we weren't lodged in, in uh, Allahabad. Well, it was already called Prayakrash. They've changed the name. No, as Well, some people know because of political reasons. We're not going into that again. But uh, we weren't lodged in, in Prayakrash, but in Delhi. Uh, actually, just by the airport. Uh, what is it called? The Earth City, I think. Just by the Indira Gandhi Airport. Mm. Um, 
And then one day we had to listen to these talks by both the minister herself and by the prime minister himself. Uh, Modi uh, eventually came to us after three hours. We were waiting for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and then the other day we were taken to, to the Kumbhmela, but it was already finished. I mean, there was no crowd. We could barely see any satus. They had already left. Mm. The, the great uh, period of uh, the, do you know the, the, the specific days for the, the deepens in, in reverb from, from the saddles that had already taken place. And even the, I mean, the locals or the pilgrims weren't there anymore. It was like, why? Okay. <laughs> well, I can guess, you no, know, so they can have more control on, on, on us and to prevent potential accidents. I don't know. Sure. Uh, but then I managed to extend my stay in India. I mean, I've already. And what did uh, what did Modi say to you? To your well, you, well, you know that this was a uh, a gesture of friendship from did India. He speak, did he speak in English or Hindi with a translator? Uh, just a little bit in English, but most of it was in 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 Hindi with a translator. Or different translators, I guess. There were probably, I don't know, six or seven languages. Mm. Spanish, English, French, Italian, Arabic. No? There were people from all over the world, from Saudi Arabia and Morocco, even Pakistan. <laughs> you wouldn't expect that, but yes, there was somebody from Pakistan and uh, Cote d'Ivoire and... Pfft, and of course, other countries in Latin America. What was the purpose of that trip from from the Indian government side? Was it in some ways to to showcase, to highlight Indian culture, and to yes, definitely it was. And I, I I think this is part of what's also behind the the campaign for for what was a campaign for the acceptance of, for the International Day of Yoga. Of course, this is a political campaign in yoga is being heralded as a cultural item um, which is very um, useful for political purposes. It's it's part of India's soft power along with um, performing arts and Bollywood. Uh, so I, this was part of it, um, of their, let's say, cultural policy to, you know, um, make a point as to their importance in foreign international affairs um, and I think that most of the people the, or the delegates the ambassadors were um, they agree with this no? I, I exchange a couple of comments with some of them and uh, none of them were scholars I mean if there was any scholar I didn't get the chance to speak to him or her but the people I talked to they most of them were journalists uh, tourist guides instructors of yoga of course uh, people interested in, in all sorts of cultural uh, topics uh, or uh, alternative therapies 
but um, I, I didn't really meet any uh, scholar mm-hmm. that I remember right now. And uh, if I did, I'm forgetting. I'm, um, I apologize. So Adrian, back back to the not yogis and and sort of to your story of of coming up through through academia and grad school. Um, you ended up falling into this research on the not yogis, produced a dissertation. Eventually, with your advisor, you guys co-published and edited this book, Yogi, Heroes, and Poets, which I'm now realizing, okay, kind of returned you to your roots of English literature, poetry, your love for poetry. You kind of found yeah. that in some ways in, in the knots themselves. Um, tell me a little bit about this book. But then I also want to lead this into a question about publications. This is something we were talking a little bit about before. This book, uh, thankfully for me, is published in English and was informative for me in my grad studies. Uh, a wonderful collection of, of uh, academic essays um, uh, from a variety of scholars uh, working on the Nath yogis uh, and householder Nats as well. Uh, published in English, uh, and then some of your other important work that you've gone on to do, uh, and I imagine your dissertation itself, published in Spanish. So, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about this book project, but then maybe we can have a conversation about um, the kind of perils and challenges of working as an academic in Spanish and English, deciding when to publish in Spanish, when to publish in English. Right. Um, okay. So the, the story behind the book is actually very close uh, or intertwined with my own PhD uh, process. Well, actually, the thesis. Uh, I, I don't remember how exactly, but David Lawrence managed to have uh, Daniel Gold read my thesis. Uh, and then David decided to organize this small, very small conference in Mexico City. And apart from, uh, obviously, uh, some colleagues who were uh, del Colegio de México, David, uh, myself, uh, and Ishita Banerji, he had uh, the participation and the attendance of um, the two goals, both Anne and Daniel, uh, June McDaniel was here and Aditya Bell also was here some years before he passed away, unfortunately. And Lubomir Ondrachka, that's when I met him. Okay. He came to Mexico City all the way from the Czech Republic. Um, and I think that's it. It was just us. And, but this was fantastic because the, the, the conference coincided with my oral defense uh, so that they, Daniel could be uh, the defense, of course. Uh, but it was a, a treat. It was almost like a gift. He didn't say so. And, I mean, speaking on the part of David, but I think it was a sort of gift. Uh, somehow I, I'd like to think like that. He, I, I collaborated to the renewal of his interests in, in yoga and tantra. Mm-hmm. So much that he decided to host this uh, conference and then having these people come over, especially the girls who I, I kept citing all the 
all throughout my thesis. It was incredible. I've never met them before. One of the things of being a, a scholar uh, in, in such a discipline as Southation Studies in Mexico is that you don't have the chance to uh, share spaces with the, the other scholars. Most of them are uh, in, in the US or the UK and then some others in the rest of Europe. But you don't have the chance. We, we are not constantly attending this conference and they are not coming to Mexico unless such a thing like this that David organized happened. Mm. So it was really formidable no? to really get to know these, uh, these great minds and discuss with them. And because of that conference, uh, David proposed the idea of well, uh, editing this volume. Uh, of course, we invited some other people. Aditya Bell couldn't make it, uh, but we had the chance to incorporate uh, other pieces like uh, Shabakis, which is a very philological uh, sort of work. And um, what else is there? I think, I think David Gordon White has a... Oh, yes, of course, David Gordon White. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. And he, uh, he, he, if I don't remember incorrectly, he gave us in um, a partial advance of something that was going to be eventually published or had to do to some other publication. I don't remember if it was uh, something that was going to be addressed in his sinister yogi's book. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably. But yes, that's, that's also great uh, to have the opportunity of having this collaboration by David White. He couldn't make it to the conference. He was invited, of course, but... Uh, I know for whatever reason he wasn't able to. And, and well, this publication was a, a huge thing for me, of course. Um, the my ch- my young chapter derives from things that I've done in my uh, dissertation, and my dissertation eventually became a book. My first book, of course, it's in Spanish. And which, this is, which book is that? It's called uh, La Piel de Tigre y la Serpiente. That's the tiger skin and the serpent. Um, uh, what's the, the, the subtitle? Not <laughs> <laughs> uh, identity through hygiography or something like this. I, I, I quite forgot. Okay. But it's very much what I do in that chapter on a larger scale, of course, and dealing with a wider uh, corpus of tales and then this is related to to your other question because um well it is natural that your dissertation your phd dissertation would become a book at least partially a book it's more or less what you would expect in an academic career inshallah no inshallah no we're still waiting for yours <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, <laughs> dead silence. And then, of course, in order for you to eventually uh, win a position, you need these things. Yeah. But then that's a somewhat specialized book. And in that case, the Spanish readership, uh, so how, how shall I put this? The thing is that in, in that dissertation in that, and in that book, I am actually having conversations with the 
scholars that I've read all during my training. Mm -hmm. That is basically an anglophone training. So it's a bit weird because it's a dialogue with anglophone scholars in a book written in Spanish. Mm -hmm. It's a bit bipolar, so to speak. I, I think it it would have been much more inadequately read if I had published this in, in English. But then, of course, I at some point I decided or thought maybe I should translate this, but well, just became impossible. An that's a really interesting point and observation you make. So, I mean, when you were working on that, and also even let's extend that even to today, uh, are, there, are there other... Um, Mexican or just Latin American based scholars working on these subjects whose writings that you, you were engaging with or, or are, uh, perhaps it's changed somewhat the landscape since when you were doing your PhD to today. Um, but maybe comment on that a little bit. It sounds you, you've already said the majority of the secondary scholarship that you were reading was, was in English, but, and you had limited contact because of your base in Colegio de Mexico to travel to conferences and things like that, normal opportunities that a young scholar would like to try to have to network and things like that. Um, what, what? Just talk about the little bit, now I'm getting sidetracked because I want to talk about the uh, Spanish-English translations, but couched in that is, is part of this overall network of what it's like to do South Asian studies, you know, in Latin America and in Mexico in particular? Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult or it can be difficult. But you have two sides of it, of course, since we are a very few uh, number of scholars doing this, you can get closer to the embassy and that's where I get invited to, uh, from the part of the ICCR to this and that. You know? Of course, if there were hundreds of scholars, it would be much more difficult. But on the other hand, you have fewer people to talk to on a daily basis, you know? because evidently my colleagues in El Colegio de Mexico, they do different things. They're not all working on yoga or Sanskrit. They do different things. Contemporary India or Japanese art or whatever. Sure. So, I mean, same thing at Harvard, I would say, actually. There was not a lot of other people working on Hatha Yoga at Harvard. <laughs> it never, yes, it's becoming trendy. Uh, well, yes, it's becoming trendy. And that does not mean that there are no people in Latin America doing uh, Indian or South Asian studies. There are. But of course, the lack of mm, strongly vised uh, departments makes it a little bit difficult to to like collectively have a, a strong and solid network now we do have this association a latin american association for uh, south asian and african studies which holds a conference every an international one every uh forgot it's uh, every two years and then Every year in between, it's just a, a national or different national conferences. And then in, in these places, we get to, to meet. And that's how I met a couple of my colleagues, especially 
Gabriel Martino, for example, who is my co-author for the Historia Minima del Yoga. He's a philosopher and uh, and he's a, a, Sanskrit, a Sanskritist as well. So he's in particular interested interested in in Sanskrit and and, and uh, yoga philosophy, and we met probably in in two or three of these conferences, and by the time I had already begun to think of trying to make a contribution to the field of modern yoga studies, so it's just it's Hindu mythology to Sarasvati to Tantra to Matsyendranath. To the Nat Yogis, to Hatha Yoga, then to yoga in a broader sense, and then to now modern yoga. It's a very long line, no? Modern yoga in Latin America, which we will get to. We will get to. (laughs) Um, So let me ask you, uh, you know, I think it's it's an obvious problem that we have in uh, yoga studies, in South Asian studies. I would say, you know, many of the humanities in general, beyond even just our specialized fields, uh, but so much of the discourse is produced uh, in the United States, in Europe, uh, is Anglophone, is, is written yeah. in the English language. Um, on the one hand, that makes it, in, in some regards, more accessible across uh, different locales, regionalities, and so forth. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, is limiting um, and uh, has all kinds of problems and biases. And so much of the discourse is being shaped by Euro and, you know, Euro-American um, frameworks. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, we need to encourage more vernacular language uh, research production. But on the other hand, when you make that decision to, to produce a piece of scholarship or even translation work in Spanish, you also then know you're limiting the potential pool of readership and of colleagues internationally who might yeah. then be able to engage with and read the, your work. You've published numerous books and chapters. Um, I'm thinking of your, your work you've done on the Yoga Bija this important early Sanskrit text associated with these not-yogis, um, translated into Spanish. Um, so how do you navigate that today as a scholar working in Mexico? Now, you know, boundaries and the way that information and knowledge is spreading online is so different today even than in years past. How do you kind of make those decisions about whether to publish in Spanish or English, or both? Yeah, it's a, it's been a constant negotiation. Uh, I, I'm not sure that it's going to end <laughs> because this is a reality. You know? There are these two uh, worlds, so to speak, or publish, uh, publishing worlds and different, completely different, well, not completely different, but fairly different audiences. And... Uh, and well, this is also part of why I decided to do uh, research on yoga in Latin America, because evidently modern yoga studies is eminently Anglophone. And there is not just in this field of modern yoga studies or South Asian studies, but in many other fields, a very uh, fixed uh, 
anglicized sort of lenses, an epistemological, say, um, bias. And I, I'm not saying this in like in a resentful way. No, no but even I, the categories, the categories that's exactly used to talk about exactly. this is this, and, and and spirituality. This is a, right, and this is actually uh, what I find a, it is problematic. Not just problematic; it also it is also or can be a weakness because when a group of people only think through English by necessity, or even if you think in English, working with South Asian sources and, and languages, mainly you are thinking through English, you can easily fail to notice that there, I mean, that the world is much broader and that the world can be read probed and analyzed through different epistemological and linguistic uh, tools. And every language, which is in itself a whole culture, can contribute different sort of um, eye-opening keys, issues, problems, etc. Um, it can also, by reflection, let you, like, see in more depth something that you are uh, discussing. But then, of course, at some point I decided, well, maybe I should just start publishing in English, basically. And it just eventually, like, keep my public talks in Spanish. Mm. But I felt that I I do have an obligation to my uh, Spanish speakers, uh, uh, well, the Spanish-speaking countries uh, and, and potential readership because uh, at least for two different reasons at least one of them is that i was i've always been into uh, public schools except for my elementary period that was a private school but apart from that i've done everything in public schools that means that basically i have been gifted with uh, by being financed by the state to being educated. So a way in which I can retribute this favor is by giving stuff that my people can read. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, the yogic community is increasingly eager to have material, serious material on, on yoga. And this is a, a drastic change. 10 years ago, when I began giving talks on, on yoga, which can be critical and demystifying. Oh, it was a bit problematic, and uh, some people will react in hostile ways. It's changed dramatically. They are like much more open, and they are very appreciative of having material, not just talks but publications in in Spanish. It's also a way in which I can make them feel taken taken into account yoga is also then because they do yoga they are part of this world and uh, they're part of the culture of yoga at the global scale yeah so many of our students at yogic studies you know as i've shared with you uh, are coming from from various latin american countries from argentina chile mexico um, and we commonly are getting 
I think anytime we advertise a course, we get the question, is this also available in Spanish? And, uh, right. <laughs> and I wish we could, uh, it, it's complicated with subtitles and, and translation, right. the technicality of the nature of our, of our lectures and so forth. Maybe at some point we'll receive some grant at yogic studies to be able to translate our courses into, uh, other languages. If anybody's listening and wants to help finance such a project, um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, for you, for your course, one thing that we are trying to do is one, include some of the readings in Spanish, some articles, some short chapters in Spanish. So if you are a, a Spanish reader, uh, you'll be able to read some of the available literature that is in Spanish in, in perhaps in your native language. Uh, and then two, uh, while we can't put the entire lectures or Q&A sessions in Spanish because that would be double the work for our, our, our professor here, Adrian uh, Munoz. Uh, we are at least going to add on about 10, 15 minutes at the end of each of the Q&A sessions uh, on Zoom where we'll have Spanish Q&A. So you'll be able to ask Adrian questions in Spanish and he can you know, respond in Spanish. And, you know, it's at least in some small way we can kind of lean towards you know um the non uh anglophonization of yoga and yoga discourse and yoga studies let's talk though now let's 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 talk about this course let's talk about this new research that you're doing as far as i'm concerned really groundbreaking research on the history of yoga in latin america um you've already written um, at least one, if not two articles or chapters on this topic, but I know it's part of a larger book project that you're working on and that you'll be sharing with students in this upcoming course. Let's start with kind of where we are right now. What, what does yoga look like today in Latin America? What, and what, what countries comprise this category of Latin America? Oh, yes, those are uh, all of them are tricky questions and they can have each a, an hour <laughs> response. Um, let's begin with probably Latin America. Uh, I'm not going in, in too much detail here, but just to give a general uh, understanding, especially for people who are not in Latin America. Uh, it is a huge region that comprises over 20 countries, more than 20 countries, from Mexico to Argentina. So that means that it's most of the American continent from geographically the north, which is Mexico, up to the southern southernmost part in, uh, which is Argentina. And then in between, you have, of course, Central America and different other countries in the Caribbean or islands, not all of them. No. Uh, the term, the category is also problematic, as we would probably discuss in, in the course. There are other uh, labels or categories that you can use. Each of them has a different problem. No. Mm. Uh, what I'm trying to bring with the category is Spanish-speaking countries and Brazil, which is Portuguese-speaking. So in principle, I'm not taking into account um, any Anglophone country for 
obvious reasons. I mean, most of them are being covered or should be covered in other, by other scholars who are doing work on Anglophone yoga. I'm not also taking into account Francophone countries, which I'm not completely happy, but it's very difficult. I mean, it's a huge region. It's a huge region. With, it's with a huge region. So cultural complexities and histories. And uh, even exactly. within I mean, that, you have to focus your attention somewhere. Exactly. And precisely because this is a huge, very ambitious, gigantic enterprise that cannot be done by one single person, I decided to call together a group of colleagues in in Latin America, who are based in Latin America mainly, so as to take part of the project. Uh, of course, I can't do it all. I mean, even thinking just Mexico would be very difficult because there is virtually nothing. Uh, so that's how eventually I uh, managed to convince Gabriel Martino and other uh, colleagues more recently, I've also invited, uh, well, I should say, th this group, this collective has a name, uh, although we are an official research project because we are not financed by any institution or organism. I do have some funding by a Mexican organism that's for my particular project on the history of yoga in Mexico, not for the whole project. But the whole project is called YOLA, a nice uh, wordplay. So this is, of course, a project devoted to uh, scrutinize the history, the reception, and the adaptations of yoga in Latin America. So Gabriel Martino is on board. I recently also invited uh, uh, Roberto Simoes, uh, a Brazilian uh, scholar, who has already published a couple of things on on the early history of yoga in South America. So he's done uh, interesting and valuable work. Uh, I have other colleagues and also more recently, I think I have already convinced Borajin Larios to also participate. So if he's listening, he cannot step back. <laughs> okay. okay, you hear that? Mutual no? friend, friend of the friend of the podcast, Borian. Yes, he's a nice guy and also a very dear friend of mine. Uh, uh, so, for the course in yoga studies, the people should expect that, of course, there would be a, a more pronounced accent on modern forms in Mexico because of my background and the, the research that I've done. But I, I am perfectly willing to try and I will bring in different issues in other parts of the region. Uh, I cannot cover every country. That's not possible. Uh, but I will try to address the major trends and uh, episodes as far as possible uh, beginning by the turn of the by the 1900s, more or less, up to the present. Let me let me return. Thank you for that. T tell us a little bit from your vantage point, from your research. What does yoga look like today in Latin America, um, broadly speaking, or we could even focus specifically on Mexico? 
how is it similar and or different to other modern flavors, other modern expressions of yoga in the U.S., in Europe, globally? Uh, what do you see going on kind of in this modern landscape of yoga in Latin America today? And then maybe we can start to go back a little bit, right. peel back some layers of history. As for the general modern landscape, you would you would find very similar expressions in, in Mexico. And, and I would say that in most parts of Latin America, there is, that is an emphasis or a preponderance of uh, body-oriented practices, postural yogas, different forms that, that they be much more uh, visible in advertising and well, everywhere, yoga studios everywhere in every neighborhood, almost every neighborhood, for sure in every big city. No? And, uh, this is an interesting, interesting thing. I think that nowadays yoga is a key issue in gentrification processes. I don't think there is a place that's become gentrified that does not have a yoga studio or some form of space that allows uh, the practice. It, I don't, I'm not saying this is the only thing, yeah. but it's one of the, along uh, with the Starbucks, one of the scenic one, right? Okay. Um, there is a, usually a vegetarian culture side by side. Uh, I, can say that every single practitioner is a vegetarian, but it is quite common. This is part of it. And uh, consumption of tea, of course, like in many other places. Uh, and then this sort of, say, secular urban spirituality, uh, something that can be problematized and discussed in greater detail in different uh, uh, spaces, not just in the course for yogic studies, but in other, uh, well, discussions in general. And so the images of slim people, fit people uh, doing complex asanas is also very part of uh, our, say, yogic imagery or iconography. It's this is more or less in consonance with the expressions around the globe, I think. Um, but then there are also like regional innovations. This is something I still have to research in, in, in more profundity because it's a complex but very fascinating issue. I think this is where you can find specific regional flavors apart from some historical episodes which are very interesting and intriguing some some of them uh, so for example one of the things that is uh, more or less common is that you would find yoga retreats in beaches and latin american beaches are beautiful <laughs> uh, and in uh, also beautiful woods or near to some sort of uh, like natural scenery yeah the, the yoga, yoga and tourism 
and kind of spiritual ecotourism, I think, is, yeah. a, is a huge topic and industry. I mean, I have to say, in my very cursory research on Google Images, typing in yoga in Latin America, and just looking around for some images, perhaps uh, to associate with this upcoming course, uh, consistently what, what comes up online is what appears to be actually um, American or European white women doing yoga in, say, Tulum, Mexico, or Machu Picchu in Peru. Yeah. Um, an advertisement for a yoga retreat in Latin America for, you know, for, for foreigners. Rarely could I actually find images of Mexicans or Chileans or Brazilians, what have you, doing, doing yoga in just a, you know, a shala or a studio. I'm sure there's plenty of images out there, but yep. that's the top hits that are coming up on a Google search when, when, when one looks at the surface level of uh, these things. And so I do think there is something telling about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dominating the, the public imagery of what's going on today. Absolutely. I mean, if you come across these images at the top of the search, uh, it speaks of something that is being offered, but it also speaks uh, about the, the, the great demand for this. They wouldn't be there if there weren't people like looking for this. Uh, yes, it happened to me as well. No? Hundreds of pages and advertisements for uh, yoga retreats, and most of these sites were in English. You, right. Sometimes you could turn or switch into Spanish language, but most of them were uh, Anglophone-oriented. That This is a topic which uh, I think needs to be researched. I don't know if I'm going to do this. <laughs> I'm hoping that other colleagues in the region would like, you know, listen to the call and get on board. Um, but what I, my, my, my guess is that, of course, there, there is a sort of spiritualization of topographic scenery of Latin America, which in any case were already exoticized previously by foreigners, tourists and occultists alike. So it's it's nothing new, it's like part of a trend. Yeah. It's just becoming more complex, merged with all other things, no, of course, um economics, but not just that. No. There are a whole range of uh, interests, drives. Um, I don't know if ex explanations. <laughs> That's a little bit more difficult to find, but uh, I think this is worth studying. So take us back a little bit to the the internal history and reception of yoga in some of these Latin American countries. As you've been doing this research, what what have you learned? Um, you know, when I think about, which which is more familiar to me, the history of yoga in the United States, uh, and there's been a great deal of scholarship one can read about about this history, and it's kind of there's some very key figures, poignant moments, you know, 
in the, the development of the ideas and practices of yoga in the United States. One often will point to uh, Emerson and Thoreau in the you know, 1800s as kind of being exposed to the Bhagavad Gita and Vedanta. And Thoreau is sometimes identified by scholars as uh, the first American yogi yep. in, in this letter to a friend, right? I think he, for the first time in the English language, perhaps he self-identifies as a, as a yogi living out in his little cabin in Walden Pond. And then you have Vivekananda coming to the World Parliament of Religions in what, 1893, this really important moment uh, for the reception of, of Indian religions and yoga and Vedanta and Paramahansa Yogananda. And, and we have these different waves of Indian gurus coming to the United States, to Europe. Um, all That history has all been complicated and nuanced and there's a little... Right bulk shelves of literature now we can read about that there's less uh, existing scholarship on the latin american side which makes this all the more exciting but so tell us just a, a little bit obviously we don't have time to uh, tell this entire story but is there a key figure or two that jumps out at you as you know who perhaps you identify even as say the first mexican yogi or the first Latin American who's inspired by India or yogic thought. Yeah, there there are uh, quite a number of figures. Uh, I haven't studied all of them in detail, of course. You need a lot of time, but the idea is to do so. Now, I remember that I was reading this book by Hugh Urban, Magia Sexualis. You read it? I haven't read it, but uh, I know it's the one. A, it's a quite amusing and interesting book. It has different chapters devoted to key figures who have been uh, very influential for, for Western uh, esotericism and commingling of um, magic and sexuality, usually by invoking uh, tantric imagery or sexual yoga or some sort of things. So on the chapter uh, devoted to infamous magician Aleister Crowley, I read that he paid a visit to Mexico in 1900, and that it was there when he began do, well practicing yoga. Of course, I was completely blown away. How come? No, of course, my first idea was that mm, probably. Yoga entered Mexico around the 60s as a, as a secondary outcome of the hippie counterculture. Mm -hmm. uh, this is much earlier. So, of course, I was intrigued. I tried to learn what happened unsuccessfully. I haven't found much on it. As it turns, apparently, he, he learned yoga from his uh, fellow mountaineer, probably came to Mexico to climb some peaks. He was also a mountaineer. And this other guy, Oscar Eckenstein, was already the yoga practitioner. So that's how he became. He was a European or, or American who also. No, he, uh, European, I forgot what's his nationality. Okay. So they, uh, they, just ha they happened to bring their knowledge of yoga with them. And then, and then he got exposed exactly. to hike, hiking in the mountains. 
Now, of course, I had to find whether they, they, they sh- for surely had social interaction with locals. Somebody has been there, probably a Freemason, because obviously Crowley didn't just spend his time climbing. He obviously had some sort of rituals of all the time. I mean, it was a Lester Crowley. How come he was not getting in touch with the other um, occultists and magicians and Freemasons? He was for sure, but it's uh, uh, an information not easy to find. So, well, I kept on reading, and eventually uh, I found that this other key major political figure in Mexican history uh, was a reader of the Bhagavad Gita. So, in a sense, so far as I can tell, he's a very first Mexican yogi. Of course, we have to understand yoga in its broader sense. No, Who was well, this? He, he was uh, Francisco Madero. He was a Mexican president. The president was, of Mexico was really he was a president. Bonita. And he was linked. He was actually one of the major um, uh, agents in bringing about the Mexican Revolution. So that's how important he was to Mexican history and politics. So Mexican Revolution more or less lasted from 1910 to 1920, approximately. Did I read, I think it was in your article, or, or maybe I look, looked him up after your article, but he, did he write his own commentary on the Gita in Spanish? He did. He did. That's crazy. Of That's course. pretty wild. I can't imagine uh, any of our contemporary presidents doing such a thing. Yeah, it's completely crazy, of course. And now the thing is, and this is similar to what happened in other parts of the globe, uh, Indian ideas have a very particular channel. Uh, and, and this channel, which is very diffuse and heterogeneous, has to do with esotericism and occultism and different sort of mm, similar associations. And in this case, uh, he read the Bhagavad Gita through theosophical translations into Spanish done by uh, Spanish theosophists uh, in Barcelona specifically. There were two or three translations into Spanish of the Bhagavad Gita. He didn't read English, as a matter of fact. That's also interesting. Madero was not Anglophone. He was Francophone. Mm. So that's a different, um, say, link in this chain of transmission and reception. Uh French culture was very important at the time in Mexico. It's, it was part of the Mexican intelligentsia. They would first learn uh, French as a foreign language and then only eventually English. Of course, that changed after the Mexican Revolution, but, um, at least partially. Uh, so this is crazy because his reading of the Gita actually was important for his political career. It, it was it wasn't a hobby. Mm. It was serious matter. Yeah. He read it pretty much like Andy. Uh, of course they each had different readings, but they both read it because of a political mission. Yeah. And both of them thought or conceived themselves as though they have a divine sort of mission. 
for the political life of each other's countries. And we uh, know, I mean, the Gita, <laughs> it makes sense with the Gita in, in many ways, is this yeah. like Kshatriya text it, to serve counsel, uh, to, you know, political, like how does one act? How does one serve? How does one engage in the world, right? But how, wow, how, how fascinating. So what around what years uh, was that happening? He wrote his comments on the Gita around 1911 and 1913. He got killed while, while being a president. He was in office. Um, and is, he that, wrote, is his commentary on the Gita, is that something that is published or is widely available? It is available now. It wasn't at the time. And I mean, because it was completely crazy. How come this is a president writing his own commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita? So he published them uh, under a pseudonym. Oh, okay. Not under his name. Or there was Babylon. a lot of uh, exactly. Only that in this case, his commentaries went by the name of an adept. Oh, interesting. He was a spiritualist. A siddha. As a matter of, uh, uh, no, a spiritist. No, but an adept, I think of, uh, you know. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, right. Siddha yes. is sometimes exactly. translated in English for better or worse. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Madero had no knowledge of Sanskrit, of course. Sure. I don't think that nobody in Mexico had any knowledge. I think that probably in Argentina, they, they were earlier in coming to... Um, get knowledge or direct knowledge of the Sanskrit language. Um, but not in Mexico at that time. So what he read was through uh, theosophist translations, even though he was no theosophist. He was against theosophy, as a matter of fact, because in general, spiritualism rejects theosophy and vice versa. Hmm. But the only available material in Spanish at the time were the publications of the Theosophical Society. And they were tremendous. I mean, their network is not just confined to the Anglophone world. Yeah. It has a multilingual um, reach. And did, and the archivists, did, they, did they have centers set up in Latin American countries? Yes. I think actually the, the very first one was in, in Buenos Aires, if I'm not mistaken. And then eventually in other parts, Mexico, for sure, um, in Central America, but I, I can, I'm not sure which country. And uh, I think they still do have some centers around. The, I mean, they're not much known, not like Sita Yoga, for sure, or the Hare Krishnas, that they're much more well, evident, you know. So perhaps similar then to the United States, kind of the first encounter with Indian religion, the ideas of yoga is a spiritual intellectual one through, through, you know, te through texts, yeah. through a text yeah. like the Gita. When, when did, uh, let's say, Indian gurus start coming to Latin America? Well, the very... First two people that I know that come to, I'm speaking of Mexico. I cannot speak of all of the countries, but in Mexico, 
there were uh, Paramahansa Yogananda in 1929. Yeah. So it was more or less, he was already in California, of course. Right. And uh, this is a topic I'm doing research in, preparing a paper. Uh, so this was uh, his, well, it's his only visit, I think, to Mexico. And of course, this led to the eventual establishment of Yogoda centers in Mexico. Uh, but I'm not sure that he that his trip was intended for um, proselytizing or something. It was apparently more a vacation. He was just on holiday. Mm-hmm. In, I'm, I know that he gave a couple of lectures or talks, but I haven't been able to trace the content of them. Even though I have some pictures, I have no content of the, the, the his speeches. Now, at the same time, there was another figure, um, uh, Charles Gina Rayadasa. He was one of the um, key members of the Theosophical Society. He was formerly from Sri Lanka. And he, I mean, at the same time, they came at the same time to Mexico City. The newspapers talk of both of them. Uh, and in the case of Gina Rayadasa, he is doing. Uh, he is a, th- this is a tour specifically for spreading the teachings and ideas of the Theosophical Society. Yeah, and then I don't know. I, yeah. I, I'm not. Sh- I'm not really sure. Somebody must have come, but I'm not really sure if somebody did before. There must have been before the 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 opening of the Hare Krishna and the Sita centers. Yeah, which would would have been in the late '60s or early '70s, perhaps um, post countercultural. And well, that's prob- is that when maybe maybe when when does when does then postural yoga start to take off? I know BKS Iyengar and Patabi Joyce made visits to well, Indra Devi was uh, Devi. Yes, yes, she uh, was uh, in Yes, she, she she was in Mexico, Uruguay, and Argentina in particular. Uh, no, but she went to Panama as well. Uh, her his, her story is fascinating, fascinating, uh, very complex. Yeah. So during all of his her, her avatars throughout her life, from everything from a dancer to an actress to everything. Uh, well, she eventually went to the U.S. And she became like this celebrity. Yeah. But while there, she also gave uh, some yoga sessions in northern Mexico. Um, I don't remember if this was near Tijuana. Uh, but then after a couple of months probably she she went back to india i think and then she came back to the american continent but that but i think she went directly to uh, buenos aires and this anecdote uh, i completely forgot so, but this was late 70s or early 80s no yeah i believe i believe she spent you know kind of the remainder of her life teaching in argentina right 
Yeah. But of course, she wasn't the only person who brought postural yoga to the region. There were other people before her. Um, but she was a yoga influencer of the day. Yeah, completely, completely. And uh, she was a celebrity. It's uh, very powerful image, you know, very charismatic as well. But for example, in the 1940s, in 1947, 48, so I mean, India is just becoming independent and uh, not an Indian, but a French guy. Uh, he was a, an occultist and philosopher and a, well, self-styled self guru. He had this vision of founding a new um, religious group, uh, an esoteric one that had to do with the age of Aquarius. And he founded this brotherhood in Caracas, Venezuela. And from there, the, the brotherhood spread all throughout Central America and to other countries in Latin America. And, uh, and this brotherhood uh, became very, very influential. They were probably among the very first the very first ones who gave a uh, possibility of doing uh, postural yoga with asanas and some sort of pranayama. Uh, uh, this is an interesting chapter as well. Uh, I'm just beginning to dive into it. This is It's a very complex one as well, no? but it's quite interesting. This was a French guy, no? This is also interesting. It was not an Anglophone uh, person or Indian guru because most of the Indian gurus who've been to Mexico or Latin America uh, basically do it through the help of English mm -hmm. and they're having an interpreter. Uh, I'm not sure if there has been a an Indian guru who eventually learned Spanish or Portuguese. I'm not quite sure. No? Mm. But then things in Brazil have been completely different, right. <laughs> like different trajectories. You know? That's also fascinating. Sometimes with relationship to Paraguay, Uruguay, and Argentina, but in itself, it's a, a completely different world. You know? So tell us a little bit more about the upcoming online course, YS118 Yoga in Latin America. Uh, what can students uh, expect? Uh, we've got four modules. It's a four-week course. Do you want to give us just a short little preview uh, of what uh, that will entail? Right. So uh, all of these um, um, anxieties and, and questions that, I've been, that we have been dialoguing are going to be uh, discussed and, and dealt into in, in the course in the four modules. So I'm trying to bring this into a more or less chronological view or overview. So in the first module, I would like to discuss the field of modern yoga studies and the impact of uh, what we can call Anglophone yoga. Well, other scholars have already called it that. So this would force us to reflect on ideas of Orientalism, colonialism, and modernity in a general way and then by this to rethink latin america within global history 
and then this will help us understand how these uh, new age and um, esoteric networks have uh, been very much part uh, of modernity all around the globe, including Latin America. I mean, uh, I've already mentioned uh, Theosophical Society and spiritualism. This is uh, they, they were international networks and say global discourses around the globe that were shared by different people. Um, and then in the second module, I would like to discuss the specifically the first decades of the 19th century in which different ideas and notions of yoga became part of political discourse or events like the episode of uh, Francisco Madero, which I already mentioned. But sometimes also these ideas of yoga in Mexico, in other parts of Latin America, were also part of um, national projects of, um, say, modernization and progress and enhancement of the nation, national psyche of different countries. They, they, they were related to the betterment of the individual and therefore a betterment of the social body. That's uh, interesting to, to read how yoga was also part of this in different Latin American destinations. And then in the third module, we will be much more uh, interested in dealing with the uh, beatnik impact on the hippie culture or counterculture in at the global scale, and then how in particular this translated into Latin American uh, episodes. So um, psychedelia, uh, the, the blooming of new age and uh, alternative therapies, uh, they were embraced by uh, different peoples in all of these regions, uh, opening different sorts of centers and uh, retreats. And in part, this is the beginning of uh, ecotourism would be much more important and, 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 and strong in, in the later decades and which uh, are to be discussed as well in the fourth and last module. In that last one, we will discuss in more greater detail aspects of physical yoga, not only physical yoga, but especially, especially since the 1980s around, and especially I would like to uh, say critically think of how the global and the local are in constant conversation, even though sometimes one tries to negate the other, they actually negotiating constantly. And this is part of the reason why tourism is tremendously important in, in the culture of yoga. And this is true of uh, Latin American forms of yoga, definitely. There is an appeal to an international audience, but at the same time, there is a, um, an attempt to stress the regional, say, values or importance or um, agencies, no? so to speak. Uh, in this last module, we will speak of um, Indra Devi's career in Latin America, uh, 
and other regional innovations, sometimes uh, syncretic forms, uh, which have to do with indigenous religious practices. And that's why you would have uh, images of uh, a, a yogi practicing or yogini in Machu Picchu, for example. No, it, it, it's got to do with this um, aspect. And uh, it's a lot of things that are to be covered in the four modules, but uh, I hope we don't go crazy. And, <laughs> and uh, but I hope that we can enjoy it. No, I, I'm looking forward to it and especially to the Q and A uh, sessions. I, I, I'm really looking forward to to what the audience uh, uh, thinks of it. How do they react? Especially if there are people from Latin America. So their own feedback would be very valuable to me. No, I mean that is not to neglect the other <laughs> uh, students, of course. But uh, uh, well, you you get my point. Absolutely. No, it's going to be a, a fascinating course, uh, an important one, um, and I, I think a, a unique one. I, again, this is, this is new research, um, and it's ongoing, and I think the exciting thing is that the conversations with the students can also help to reframe, to bring new, new insights, new questions, perhaps even new ethnographic data of the yogis and Absolutely, yes. in Latin America. Absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, the course runs live uh, from October 4th through 29th, 2021. Uh, but if you're tuning into this uh, after those dates, uh, the, the recordings will be available for self-study so you can uh, enjoy this course anytime thereafter. Adrian, I think I've kept you here for, for lo uh, long enough. I think we've gone way over time, actually. Um, thanks so much to our listeners uh, for, for staying on with us after hours here. And actually to our viewers as well. I forgot to mention, um, uh, this is the first time ever we're having video on. And this uh, Yogic Studies podcast is airing on our YouTube channel. So if you're a regular listener of the podcast um, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you consume the audio version of the podcast, go check out the, the video form uh, on the Yogic Studies YouTube channel. So thanks again, Adrian. Uh, it's been wonderful to to hear your story, to learn more about your your research, past and present. Um, anything else uh, that you'd like to end with today or maybe that we didn't get to touch on? Uh, there's probably a hundred of things that I didn't <laughs> speak of or left in the air, but what to do? You can do everything. Uh, no, it was a pleasure to, to, to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Um, well, looking forward for the course, and uh, well, um, I hope that's, that this new format of the podcast, uh, you know, it becomes really something. Uh, I think actually what you're doing is really something, not just the podcast, but the whole project of Yogic Yogic Studies. So I'm ha happy to be part of it. Thank you, Seth. Well, thanks, Adrian. It wouldn't it wouldn't exist without good folks like yourself. Uh, so the, the success of yoga studies 
I think is a tribute to the wonderful scholars and colleagues uh, and, and people doing this work that we're able to bring on and highlight. But then, of course, because of this amazing community of, of students and people who were, who were interested in these studies and were able to create this platform to try to make it a little bit more accessible and available to those who, who really want to learn uh, and soak up this knowledge. So, yeah, thanks for, for, uh, for playing your part and uh, getting to tell kind of a new chapter, a new piece in yoga's fascinating and, you know, like unending story of yoga. You know, just when you think you kind of know what yoga is and the history of yoga and, oh, then we open up, well, there's just all these untold stories and, and chapters of, of yoga's incarnations the avatars of yoga in, in Latin America. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Adrian, well, please take care. We'll, we'll be in touch here soon about the course and uh, everybody else. Uh, until next time. 